0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the Talk, Talk, Talk podcast, episode 43. Back here with our co-host, Dan Kylie. Dan, back on Tuesday evenings, man. I'm getting used to this. I, I didn't think we are going to get used to this until maybe a few weeks down the road. Tuesday evenings, I think it's a great night.
1: It ain't bad. It's a, <clears throat> Sometimes it's a challenge for me to get home and get all set up on time, but I think it's a much better time frame for everybody to pay attention and, and tune in, so... I think you're right. I think it's a great time slot for us.
0: We almost had another episode last week. I debated giving you a text Thursday. Uh, I had another commitment I had to tend to that day that I had planned weeks out. And I was like, damn, all this Nick Saban, Jimbo Fisher drama is just a segment made in heaven for Dan Kelly to go off on this whole drama. I, I wanted it so bad. But I was like, well, I've had this in the works for a few weeks now. I can't cancel. So I decided to to let us go the full week. Let everything play out before we came back and gave y'all the top dog take on all of that, and we're gonna get into that basically right away because you know we're, we're it, it's a crazy time in college football. I, I don't think I've ever remembered a time period where there was this much controversy um, created by another you know head coach. I mean, Nick Saban basically went slice bread, quote unquote, slice bread. On Jimbo Fisher, if y'all know the, the, the meshes board guru, Sliced Bread, that Jimbo Fisher called out back in December uh, for all these, I think it was the NIL violations or paying these players. Well, Nick Saban took that to the national stage and told a bunch of, I guess it was boosters in Tuscaloosa, hey, you know, we're going to have trouble competing with these guys, you know, like a&- the NMs and and these other schools, because they're straight up giving payments to some of these players. Nick Saban called him out on it, and it started a brouhaha unlike one we've ever seen. Dan, I want to get your initial thoughts before we go into the first segment of the night. What were your thoughts when this all unfolded last Thursday?
1: Well, I can't stand Jimbo Fisher and I'm on the record with that. So I was loving every bit of it, but you know, Jimbo of course had his comeback and the SEC commissioner sank. He had to come out and, and spank everybody on the wrist and, and tell them to knock it off. And he's not going to tolerate any of that stuff. So, I, you know, listen, at the end of the day, Jimbo can say whatever he wants to. He knows damn well what happened, and he's not ever going to tell the truth. But, you know, that's that's par for the course with football coaches and how they get players. So it is what it is. You know, like I love the uh, tweets that you were sending out, how they were like, what what was it, uh, four and something or uh, whatever it was. You tweeted out, like, their terrible record that they've had and, like, their terrible recruiting classes, and then all of a sudden you get the number one class. It's like – It wasn't too many years ago that we saw Hugh Freeze down at Ole Miss go from complete horseshit record, complete horseshit, uh, you know, recruiting. All of a sudden, he's got the number one class in America with all of these great players. It's like, you know, something doesn't add up. Like, even like when Kirby came in at University of Georgia, he didn't immediately ascend to the number one position, okay? And, And Georgia had been recruiting at a top 10 level, you know, there was like a 13 mixed in there too. But you had basically been recruiting at a top 10 level every single year. And Kirby kind of went like, what well, I believe it was what, six the first year. And then it kind of went to three, two or three, one, three, one, one, whatever, you know, it, yeah. it, that, that kind of thing. It was, it, it wasn't crazy. Like when Nick Saban first got to Alabama, he didn't immediately go to number one. It was kind of like, you know, middle of the road, Bumping up, bumping up, bumping up. He started winning ball games, and then he built his dynasty. So I don't, I don't, I'm not here for that conversation. I don't want to hear. I know, like Brooks is in love with Jimbo Fisher. I don't get that whole thing. I watched his like his whole intro. He just loves him some Jimbo Fisher. I can't stand that dude. And because he he expects us to believe that like he just worked harder than everybody else. Get the hell out of here, bro. You ain't never worked harder than anybody else. The whole mo uh, on the whole narrative about you coming out of Florida State was that you didn't do nothing like you you just basically ran a program into the ground because you weren't willing to work now all of a sudden you're willing to work I'm not here for it
0: you know I'm not a big Texas m fan I mean to me they're just a little bit slightly less successful Auburn I mean Dan one of the tweets I put up, you mentioned I was looking at the records since dating back to 2007 let's read out some of these records Dan shall we not Seven and six, four and eight, six and seven, nine and four, seven and six, eleven and two. Oh wow, they got ten wins. Nine and four, eight and five, eight and five, eight and five, seven and six, nine and four, eight and five, nine and one, eight and four. Can you tell me? Has there been any difference? Can Can you tell a difference between the three head coaches that presided over those uh, those years?
1: No, I can't. I don't even know who was eleven and two. Was that Dan Mullen?
0: That uh, <laughs> That was um. What's his name? That Kevin uh, Sumlin back in uh, twelve. <laughs> I was thinking, I was thinking
1: Mississippi State.
0: <laughs> but uh, like you, you hey, they might at, have better records. That might you be can, similar stats.
1: You can look at Mississippi States and it's the same thing, and that's my point. That's what I'm getting at. Like Dan Mullen did the same thing at Mississippi State. He had that one blip and he got paid for it. So whatever. All right. On to your segment,
0: sir. Bull <laughs> well, guys, you know, that, that all that got everybody talking. We got a lot of problems in college football. Me and Dan have spoke about it at length over the last month. I mean, really, we spent the whole month of May talking about how, you know, what the problems are and and how upset we are because there's just nothing being done. And I think the reality of it is I don't think anything was going to be done at a national level until last Thursday. So now that got us talking. I spoke over the weekend with um, with a good friend of mine that, that um, has covered college football for a long time. And, and I straight up asked him, you know, what his thoughts were on this whole thing. Uh, and, and it got us going. It, he, he gave some insight into what he thinks the process is going to look like. Obviously, over the last few weeks, if you've been living under a rock, I'll give you a little bit of a rundown of what we're talking about. You know, over the last two to three years specifically, college football has been suffering from two problems. Main problems, two. We have insane roster turnover, basic, insane roster turnover, and now we're straight up paying players. Like Brooks Austin said last night on NBR, nothing but rants, you know, it used to be this under the table thing. You know, it was the the hidden backmen as, as people call it, you know, the same connections that got Hugh Freeze fired at Old Miss, you know, years ago, as Dan mentioned earlier in the show, all these hidden back men. It was, you know, let's go to a, a recruit's living room, say, hey, you know, Here's a here's a McDonald's back. Here's a Happy Meal. Um, let's keep it under the table. You know that that type of deal, or buy somebody a car, buy a family member a car. That type of deal. It was all under the table, all the way from the public view. It wasn't happening in front of our eyes. Then NIL came in in 2020, the summer of 2021, excuse me, and it it, it basically gave everyone free license. Because Dan, what is a governing body without a spine? The 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 analogy. The NCA. The NCAA, the analogy I've used for it, um, the NCAA is basically the United States under the Articles of Confederation. Just, hey, I'm here with the iron, uh, I'm going to rule, everyone's going to be free, do whatever you want, but hey, I have no power in the grand scheme of things. You know, yes, we may be a a quote-unquote executive branch, but, you know, we're giving the states or the schools the power, a.k.a. the Power Five. That's who's running college football, in my opinion. The power five. There is nobody else more powerful in college football right now, and he needs more power than Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner. That's because, Dan, the SEC runs the damn table. They've ran the damn table ever since Nick Saban rose to where he is today at Alabama. So let's let's break this down a little bit. Dan, I did some stat hunting uh, before this show, and it led me to an article um, back in Sports Illustrated in April. We've had, as of April 28th, we've had 2,669 players enter the portal in the last eight months alone. In the 2020-2021 cycle, 12 months, that's 12 months, there was 2,654. Dan, we've managed in the last eight months to have more people enter the transfer portal than we did in the span of 12 months from 2020 to 2021. Guys, this isn't a pro sport. I'm sorry. We College football, college athletics as a whole, is a quote-unquote amateur sport. That is the guys that the NCAA governed. That was their principle for the longest time. Spanning ever since, you know, we've had, ever since the whole debate as to whether or not college athletes should be paid, it was no because they're amateur athletes. It is amateur athletics, all right? It is a step up, just a tiny step up from where you are in high school athletics so you don't get paid. Well, now, you got people entering the portal because there's more money. That's that's what they're finding. It is capitalism, as Ruth says in the comment, the capitalism of college football. There is money to be had, and that's no problem. I have no problem with it. Dan has no problem with it. We've said it at length. We are both for college athletes getting paid. I mean, being able to profit off of something as simple as your name, image, and likeness is sensible. It is probably one of the best things that has happened or could have happened to college sports as a whole. But as we've seen in the past, Anything that's good on the surface with the NCAA, when they touch it, it turns to shit. That's just how it is. All right, A thing that could be so good, a thing that could turn their public image around, they've turned it into an ongoing negative story. Uh, When you talk NIL, there's not much positives behind it. Go search NIL on the headlines in Google. Only headlines you're going to find is about Nick the Jim Fisher rant. And possibly a lot more negative headlines about why you know some schools are paying and some players are not, uh, some schools aren't. But here's the thing: insane roster turnover, guys. Here's the problem: transfer portal is all well and good, another great big step by the NCAA. But you know, without the rules and regulations, they've turned it, turned it into bad. It's it's been a bad thing, and it's because there's no regulations, just like NIL in 2020, 2021, 50 percent. Of the players that enter the portal of that 2,654 have found a new home. 54%. Meaning 41% stayed in the portal. 5% withdrew their name. Of that 41%, those guys never found a new home, guys. Or, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. 54% of those players in the portal never ended up enrolling at a new school. 41% remained in the portal. 5% withdrew their name. Dan, it has gotten to the point where it is college football free agency. It's college athletics free agency, excuse me, but college football is the bread producer. That's where the money's at.
1: Well, the biggest issue with that many people enter, entering the portal is there's not that many spots for people to fill. So it, it's, it's bad math, and these people are getting bad advice because you have to understand a lot of those spots are getting occupied by kids coming out of high school. But then it's a two-fold uh, approach where – Half the kids in high school, I mean, all right, loosely based, okay. Half the kids in high school are not getting a spot that they would traditionally get because they're being filled by the people in the portal. But then half the people in the portal are not getting placed because of people coming out of high school. So it's a dog eat dog world at that level where, you know, basically 50% of the kids that are in the portal are cheating. 50% of the kids that are coming out of high school because they're selfish or whatever the case may be. If you look at the portal, there's a handful of players that is in the portal that can make a difference, can make an impact on a roster. And then the rest of them, the reason they're in the portal is because they weren't very good. And they kind of got it found out. And the schools that they were at were like, mm, well, we don't really need you. And then they just float. And they don't have it. But those types of people are the people who just processed out of school, just flunked out of school or went on to do something else or just finished out as a student. Now they have a different route where they think they can find a different place and it's just kind of junking up the system. So I'm interested to see if he has something, how to fix that. But yeah, I, that's way too many people entering the portal. And some people just need to be told football is not in your future anymore. You got to go
0: home. And then there's the problem, you know, with all these people in the portal, we're now seeing a trend of where you got Colleges taking only—we got colleges taking twelve people from high school of the high school ranks. You got people taking twelve people in your recruiting class because they're depending so much more on the portal because they see you know I mean they see the portal as guaranteed production almost. It is you know if I go take from the portal, I got a better chance of hitting you know wins right now, winning championships right now than I do going to develop a, a player out of high school taking that risk. There there is a there is a view that hey. Any, you know, most of these guys in the portal, a Jordan Addison, a Quinn Ewers, there's, there's, you know, there's no risk in that. What, what are you using? You, you get more, you, you, you get more production right off the bat. And I think it's, it, it's a product of these top jobs, you know, having so much pressure. Look at Auburn. Auburn wanted to fire their head coach Dan. The boosters wanted to single handedly fire their head coach, and they brought allegations against them. that I don't think were ever found to be true obviously you got a lot of people upset about them. Uh, a lot of people, uh, most of the Auburn fan, I, th- I think most of the Auburn fan was split. I think some of them want to keep them because uh, they realized, Hey, if we do fire Brian Harson, you know, what better option we're going to get? Who's going to want to come to a school where the boosters just single handedly decide, Hey, screw you. I'm going to fire you. You know, who, who wants to go there? Huh, same but,
1: thing happened to Tennessee.
0: Yeah. You know, they, 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 they ratted themselves out and, you know, thanks to the NCAA having no spine, that kind of got off easily, and, and now Josh Hypel, congrats to him. It looks to be turning that ship around. So the next problem, I know I, I, I've taken a little bit too long with the recap. Um, so I'm going to speed it up. Introduction: IL. It is pay for play, guys. It is free agency. We're going to the highest bidder. You even got people. You even got programs tampering with players on other people's roster. There is Xavier Worthy. One of the best returning receivers in the country had, I think, had over 1,000 yards last year electric at the University of Texas in a season that was not very fun to watch or electric. Apparently got offered over a million dollars to go play somewhere else by a school to basically say, hey, here's seven figures if you come to my school and leave Texas. Wasn't in the portal. Wasn't even considered leaving. Where, Where does that happen, guys? That happens from pro sports. But now it's happening in college athletics. So now, Dan, let's get into it. We have a lot of problems to fix. we spent a lot of time complaining about these problems, talking about these problems, but it's time to offer solutions. So we're going to go through it. Dan mentioned last week, and, and, and here's where the crux of the case is with the NCAA. Dan mentioned it the other week. The NCAA knows if they do anything to come back to the table to try and establish order, they will be met in the courts. Dan's mentioned it. He, he said, I believe he brought a quote from Jay Billis that said, you know, the NCAA is in legal trouble if they do anything. Tons of lawsuits are bound to happen the moment NCAA tries to restore some justice. So how are we going to fix this? How can the NCAA avoid lawsuits? Because the courts have already told them. The Supreme Courts of the United States of America voted 9-0 against them not too long ago. 9-0 and told them, hey, you cannot disrupt these players' opportunities in the free market. I believe it was a scholarship case um, that they were, they were fighting against talking about putting caps on scholarships. The Supreme Court of the United States voted 9-0, saying that cannot happen. And it's going to happen again if they try and disrupt the value of these players on the open market, which is, you know, their NIL value. So, Dan, here's how we're going to... Here's 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 the options. Fix number one, option number one. The NCAA can file for an antitrust exemption. That is what's holding the NCAA back in all these lawsuits and what will hold them back in court cases the antitrust laws. The NCAA will be branded basically a trust. They will have a monopoly on the landscape um, and it will prevent them from from trying to cap the amount of money going to these athletes. So what can they do? They can file for antitrust exemption just like the uh, Major League League Baseball did years back, um, which will allow them... Basically, what that will do is allow what, what needs to happen. If that happens... What I see happening is the players, college athletes, come together and unionize. And basically, once they unionize, kind of like in pro sports, you would have to collectively collectively bargain with the schools, with the programs, maybe with the NCAA as a whole, and and try to cut a deal. Maybe you see college athletes come together, unionize, and get pieces of those lucrative TV deals. Because, my God, if you're a player in the SEC, who doesn't want a piece of that pie that they just signed with ESPN? You know, and another avenue that that could happen if they do collectively bargain, thanks to an antitrust exemption, then the NCAA can kind of restore more order, try and put caps onto what is happening. Uh, you know how much money they're being made. All right, so that's the first option: file for antitrust exemption. Second option: restore power to the conferences. Power Five, the Power Five conferences, basically already run college football. Hence why they're called the Power Five. Because it is the five most respected conferences. Five most respected conferences in the sport. And in college athletics as a whole. Let them do it. NCAA, take a step back. Don't worry about anything. Let the people, let the Greg Sankey's of the world run the sport. Let them set these rules. Come together. Unify together. Instead of fighting amongst each other. Because the SEC is taking Texas and OU from the Big 12. Work together to put rules in place regarding the transfer portal, and name, image, and likeness legislation. And let the NCAA only act as an investigative body. Let the conferences run the place. Let them run the ship. They know what's best for their for their for not only their conference, but their student athletes. The NCAA, they have two hands tied behind their back. They can't do anything. So that's one option. The third option, and I'm going to let Dan take it away to talk about his thoughts on all this, is the Power Five breaks away from the group of five. Now, this is something that I think a lot of people have talked about over the last three to four years specifically. Because, you know, the Power Five, I mean, really runs college football. If the likelihood of you getting into college football playoff up until this past season, if you weren't a Power Five school or Notre Dame, you weren't getting in the college football playoff. Cincinnati broke that barrier. And the reason is not because Group Five schools, anyone in the Group Five, not because they aren't talented, not because those players aren't talented, It's just because the scale of which these Power 5 schools are doing things, the Nick Sabans of the world, the budgets they have, the money they have, the TV contracts they have, makes it easier for them to compete at a high level. So, here's how I think it would happen. And I think the breaking away of the Power 5 would be a good thing because it would help downsize the NCAA. I think the NCAA is already below it. It's too much to manage. And I think at this point, it's best if the NCAA says, okay, Football is, you know, obviously it's the bread getter. Football brings in all the money for all these other sports. You know, let the, let football be in its own category. Let it be on that pedestal that it already is in the fans, in the mind of the fans. Let it break away. Let the breakaway of the Power Five be governed by themselves. Let them appoint a commissioner of Greg Sankey um, to basically, you know, Greg Sankey is, I, I think, the, the the dream candidate. Let them run it. Let them run the sport. And let the NCAA basically govern the group of five schools and the Power Five have their own thing. Let them have their own playoff. You know, let them, let them do all these things that the NCAA currently does, give all that power to the, group of five, to the Power Five schools, and let them run their own business. So, Dan, I want to come to you. It is crazy. We went through three options, tried to rapid fire them. Um, I want to get your take on what we just discussed here and maybe anything that sticks out to your eye.
1: Well, the one thing that keeps coming to my mind is that there is no, with, with the way everything is changing, there is no college football anymore. It's not, you know, the way that we've always known it. It's layers. It's high school football, then it's college football, and then there's the NFL. And the NFL is the professionals. That's the goal. Now it's like college. It's like there's no amateur anything anymore. At what point do high school players start getting paid? to play at different high schools at what point? I mean, if you're going to say it's free market and you can't stop somebody from getting paid. So why can't we pay high schoolers? I mean, wait, wait. I mean, let's just take it a step further. Why can't we pay youth players? Why can't a 10 year old make money? I mean, it's, it's absolutely borderline ridiculous to this point. And I'm, I'm not trying to be obnoxious about it, but I, I'm just, I'm I'm a lot over it. And I know when you talked about, you wanted to to touch on this one more time. It's like, I, I'm just so over it. I'm just so over it. But of the three options that you gave, I like number two, uh, the most. Right, allow the power five to kind of come together, and collectively come up with the rules. The, with the antitrust thing, and you're going to start allowing these people to negotiate. First of all, these kids have no negotiating skills. And they're going to put together a union. They're going to hire representation, and then you're going to end up with like the baseball union. It's a complete mess. It's a shit show. I I don't want to see that happen, but I mean, I'm sure it's going to happen at some point. Some some iteration of what you're talking about with the um, with them unionizing is probably going to happen at some point. But option three is actually pretty viable, right? And we've been talking about this, not necessarily you and I, but as a collective, the entire space that we operate in has been talking about the top teams breaking away from the NCAA and basically doing their own thing. And that's becoming more and more realistic every time we talk about this, where, you know, what what is good for the University of Georgia is not necessarily good for Idaho, right? And I'm not picking on Idaho, but it's just not. What's good for University of Alabama is not good for Rhode Island. So there has to be different levels, and maybe that's where you get the – kind of the amateur football back is in those lower tier schools where that's where the normal kids are going to go to school and play their college football and then you're going to have these elite prospects uh the one percenters are going to go to these top level schools and get their money whatever but i i don't i mean you gave some pretty good ideas and it was pretty well thought, thought out i think that's the most i've ever listened to someone talk in my entire life Uh, Without checking out So I actually did pay attention and and listen to it And you had some really good ideas But I think two and three is probably uh, With number three Becoming ever more Increasing uh, a possibility Every day
0: You know the, the, it all comes down to, you know, we're, we've been so frustrated. We, we've we aired our frustrations with everything going on. We had a whole reaction episode to just, you know, the NCAA rolling out these new guidelines, which were basically, you know, here's the here's the letter of the law. Now it's, you know, the question becomes, well, are they going to do anything to enforce those? You know, are, is this just a scare tactic? Or are they actually going to enforce those? And we don't know to this day whether or not they're going to enforce those. So, Dan, from one hot segment to the next we have a new edition of what is Dan angry about now so Dan take it away from one rant to the next
1: all right so I'm not necessarily totally angry about this but this is a Harrison Reno um, request and it was the way that the NBA is officiated because it drives a lot of people crazy and it's not necessarily what is Dan angry about what is the collective world angry about and it's When you watch an NBA basketball game, you don't know how it's going to be officiated. And with the postseason, like the one thing I've always loved about baseball, the way that they handle their officials in the postseason is if you're, if a crew is on a series, they stay on that series, but that's not how it works with the NBA. They rotate officials in and out of the series. And you have guys like Scott Foster who has a nickname as the extender because through time, It has been proven that when Scott Foster calls a series, it is to extend the series, meaning the team that is trailing in the series typically wins when Scott Foster calls the game. And then Tony Brothers is another guy who comes in and he kind of lets them play and doesn't call too many fouls. Or what he does call blows your absolute love and mind and you don't understand what's being called. So, NBA is the only professional sport to have been proven to fix games and cheat. It is proven. It's, this is not an accusation from me. This is not a wildly speculative comment by me. It's proven. They, they were caught cheating multiple times. And, I mean, you can go as far back to rigging the draft and stuff like that. Now, that's more of the tinfoil hat type of person. But as far as how the games are officiated, it's 100% true the games are manipulated by the officials it's been proven and it's never really gone away and if you don't want to take my word for it that's fine you don't have to you can go look at vegas vegas has odds based on what officials are calling the games and how it's going to be called so last night i don't know how many of you actually watched um the heat series of the heat celtics series so in game three, the way it was officiated is they let the Miami Heat just beat the ever-living shit out of the Celtics. And they were able to do And so they did the same thing to the Hawks, if you remember, the way that they beat up on the Hawks, and they beat Trey Young into a bloody pulp, and he wasn't able to do anything. So that same set of officials, Tony Brothers and those guys, did game three. And the Celtics were beaten to the ground. The Heat were able to take a 2-1 series lead. So what they did was they brought Scott Foster in to do game four, the extender. And he comes in and he decides that he's going to be the sheriff. And he is, you know, standing at midcourt before the game, with arms crossed, surveying. And it's almost like basically he said, hey, how you guys played in game three, we're not doing that anymore. And he takes over the game. He's calling everything. Uh, And again, the extender. He's calling everything, and he completely takes Miami out of their game, and the Celtics are up 30 by the end of the first quarter. So effectively, they did what they wanted him to do, is they changed the series, that Scott Foster changed the series. So part of this conversation that you were angry about is how certain people get officiated. So Giannis is a big one where nobody knows how to officiate the man. They let him do whatever he wants to do, and he is – bullying people up and down the court and they don't call anything on him and everything against him so how do you defend a guy like Giannis because if I put my hands on you you're going to call a foul if if I don't he's going to bulldoze me over if I try to take a charge you're going to call it a block because you don't want to get Giannis in foul trouble so I understand that perspective from uh, the average viewer like you and I don't have an answer for that LeBron LeBron has always gotten the calls he's always gotten the calls And a lot of people whine or complain or knock LeBron for being a whiner, but he understands that if he just voices his frustration, he's going to get the games called the way he wants to. Now, the other end of that is you have young stars. And you never know when a young star is going to start getting calls and when they're not. For the longest time, Trey Young has never gotten the calls that some of the other players do. If you look at the way um, uh, John Morant, Every time Ja Morant does his crossover or his hesitation move, he takes four steps before the ball ever hits the ground. It is 100% unequivocally a travel, but they he doesn't call it from day one. Ja Morant has always gotten the superstar calls, Trey Young doesn't, and that's a lot of the frustration that you see again. It, it's This wasn't something that I was necessarily angry about. I've been an NBA fan my entire life. I'm very familiar with how it works, but I understand why people get angry because again, going back to my earlier point, the NBA has always been accused of cheating. They've been caught cheating and they do what they need to do to manipulate a system or a a series. I'm sorry, not a, a system, a series. And again, they did it again. Tony brothers in game three, Scott Foster in game four. If you want more coverage on that, you could tune in to Bill Simmons podcast. He uh, is a gambler to heart and he follows all of the lines. He could tell you every single official, uh, you know, like he, he'll tell you, Oh, once we find out this guy's officiating our game, it changes our bet. We're going to bet it this way because typically this guy does that. And you can go to Vegas. You can go anywhere. There are lines based on referees. So if this isn't Dan coming up with stuff, this is not Dan speaking out of turn. You are more than welcome to look up this information. Just go look at Game 3, Boston-Miami, Game 4, Boston-Miami and see the difference of the way it was officiated, which is why a lot of people get angry, not necessarily Dan. What is Dan angry about? But what are people angry about right now is the way that these
0: NBA playoffs are officiated, and it's typically purposeful. Dan, real quick, let's put you on the spot real quick. Do we have something that maybe you can go into real quick about what Dan is angry about this week? Because, yes, it was by request. I wanted to hear your take on players getting calls because I saw you tweet it uh, maybe a week back or two.
1: What am I angry about? I'm not necessarily angry about anything right now that's not, like, work-related. So...
0: I <laughs> guess we can't go into that. But, guys, we got, we're got we 30 minutes in, two segments out of four. We got a loaded show. Absolutely loaded. We try. I mean, with the way Dan and I have 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 ran shows in the past, is we get three good segments, and we can take those three segments, which usually correlate to maybe two to three pages of notes, uh, and that will last us an hour. Well, the day, I, I don't know how long we're gonna last, but we're gonna keep going till we got nothing else to talk about. So, Dan, it is bold prediction time. You wanted you wanted this. You brought this up as a potential idea, put it in the show. Had to delay it last week because. We also had another loaded show last week, but Dan, I want you to start us off. What are your, some of your boldest or, or bold predictions? Whether you want to start with your boldest or maybe one of your more realistic predictions.
1: So I think it's pretty realistic. Although I know the peanut gallery hates this prediction because everybody hates them. I, I'm just I, I think with the with Lincoln Riley, Caleb Williams, and all the talent they have going out there. I believe what was their record last year? Was it six and four or something or six uh, or I don't know. It wasn't good, right?
0: I think maybe what six and seven.
1: Yeah. So it wasn't good. They are a 10 to 11 win team this year. And I believe that offense finishes top three in the country. That is my bold predictions. I think they are a 10 or 11 win team this year. I'm not saying they're going to win the national title. I'm not even saying they're going to make that, the playoff. But that is a 10, 11 win team, and their their offense is going to be top five in the in the country. And Caleb Williams will be in New York.
0: Is You see, my, my only question with USC and the way Lincoln Riley's building that program is, can you turn the culture around that fast by infusing all this talent from the portal, can that be done? Is, is this, I mean, it hasn't gotten to the point where like pro sports, like in the NFL, you can basically go sign your whole starting defense out of free agency and basically turn that thing around like that. I mean, can that be done in college football?
1: I believe it can in today's culture because of the AAU slash seven on seven culture that these kids are indoctrinated in, in high school where every single week they have new teammates and they're constantly changing teams. It's if you think this where the money is is a college only issue, that is 100% false because these kids are getting paid to go to these different 7 on 7 teams. They 100% are. These 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 7 on 7 coaches and stuff like that, they get their rocks off by winning these tournaments and they they'll pay in same way AAU. Uh, if you uh, there's a reason that Mikey Williams's mom is not working, but they're making millions of dollars every year. It's like people have been paying. It's It's been that way. So can the culture change immediately? Absolutely. These kids are so used to being on a different team every year that it doesn't even matter. So can the culture change? Yeah, I'm I'm 100% in, in, in belief that that can happen. So that is my first bold prediction is that that will happen. My second bold prediction I think Michigan loses four games this year. And I know that's kind of crazy, right? I, because they just came off the, the season that they had. But I would – my bold prediction, I was trying to think of something bold, right? I, I Like I wasn't trying to be low-hanging fruit guy. I think Michigan loses four games this year. I think they take that slide backwards. And I, I'll go even as far to say is I think – Michigan state loses multiple games this year too. Not a good year to be in Michigan football.
0: Does, does it get any worse for Jim Harbaugh if he loses four games this year? I mean, I can't see him surviving that all. I'm not saying they'd fire him, but I can't see him staying in town for much longer.
1: But I don't, that's the one I'll never get is because if the people who are Michigan fans, they really think Jim Harbaugh is something special. They really, they really do. And maybe they don't lose four games. Maybe I'm just got an extra grind with Jim Marble. I don't know, but I I could see them losing games that they shouldn't lose this year.
0: Michigan State, I I, I think I'm there with you. I mean, you're replacing Kenneth Walker. I mean, that's that was, that was basically the bell cow of that offense. That was the offense in some cases. You know, Mel Tucker's a good coach, but you know, how how does he replace basically fifty? I don't know. Not 50% of his offense, but a good majority of that offensive production. How's he replace that? Uh, so, Dan, you know, talking going off these 10 win predictions, I'm going to join you right in that category. I got a team that I think, after looking at their schedule and being convinced of what they got going on over there, you know, kind of along the same lines of whether or not transfer portal, you know, you can inf- you can basically put a shot in the arm of a program and, and get a new culture. I think Texas wins 10 games in 2022. You return guys like Bijan Robinson, one of the most electric players in college football. Then you go and return one of the most electric receivers in college football in Xavier Worthy. I mean, go watch those two play last year. I mean, that was their team. That was, that's why you tune in, to go see that guy. Go watch Xavier Worthy against OU last year. I mean, that game as a whole was wild, but watching him play made it even better. So, not only do you bring those two back, you get talent from the portal. Quinn Ewers, you know, a former number one overall quarterback. The top, I, I think it was one of the top five ever rated quarterbacks of all time. Top Trevor five Lawrence.
1: mullets for sure.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Trevor Lawrence, Vince Young, that category of a prospect. Bringing Isaiah Noyor, receiver from Wyoming. I don't know too much about him, so I'm not going to act like I'm a I'm – a, expert on what he's going to bring that offense bring in two guys from Alabama that Sark recruited one of them also uh, worked him uh, the other in his offense the year before and Ajayi Hall and Jaleel Billingsley Jaleel Billingsley you know didn't have the same type of role that he had in in, in Sark's offense after Sark left and Bill O'Brien's offense I think you know Bill O'Brien I I think we've talked about on the show Dan I mean it's no secret that dude's not running his system that that is not Bill O'Brien's system Bill O'Brien is the play caller by all means, but he's running another man's playbook. So, you know, I there, there's some speculation as to whether or not Sark was running his own playbook in his time there or whether or not it was handed down from Lane Kiffin, which, you know, in either case is not a bad thing because, I mean, the Sark and Lane Kiffin are two of the best play callers in the country. But, you know, when you look at Texas, skilled players are there offensively. The question is, where you know, what does that offensive line look like? What does that defense look like?
1: Well, the one thing that you have to keep in mind with Alabama for specifically is after Lane Kiffin came in, he told every single offensive coach that came in is we're not running your system. You're running our system. And he's on the record saying that it's, this is not, again, this is not a school. You can go back and trace it where he says that every single offensive coordinator come in has to run what they run and they have to run with their, their terminology. He's not changing a thing. So they're running the system. So to that point, how much of that was Sark or how much was Sark running somebody else's? And that's a very valid question and a point. And I don't ever recall Sark being just this absolute genius outside of when he was at Alabama. I mean, he was here with the Falcons for a little bit, and I don't remember anybody calling him a genius while he was here. But I want to answer real quick a question. Uh, Jeremiah Stoddard asked us, does that mean I have Ohio State in the playoffs? Well, my question to you, Jeremiah, would be, do you not have them in the playoffs? Because, I mean, the Big Ten typically gets a team in, and I don't see anybody that can compete with them. So I'm going to throw it back at you, my brother, and you can answer however you want to. But I, I just don't see how Ohio State doesn't make the playoffs.
0: Dan, I got a question for you because I saw this on my timeline today. I don't want people in the comment section to respond. Uh, someone who works for ESPN, I don't remember his name, I don't have the tweet in front of me, ranked the best top 10 head coaches in college football. Hey. Oh, I didn't ranked, realize that was an ESPN guy. That was an ESPN guy. What an idiot. Ranked Ryan Day above Dabo Sweeney and Kirby Smart. Off recollection, it was Nick Saban, Ryan Day, then Kirby Smart, then Dabo Sweeney. Dan, when you're looking at head coaches, specifically trying to rank the best head coaches in college football today, do rings matter in that conversation? Or are are we just going to rank people based off of how much hype and headlines they get or how flashy their system is? I think it's,
1: I think it's when you see those lists more times than not, it's people trying to get attention and trying to get clicks and trying to get notoriety and trying to get you to pay attention to their stuff. Because if you're being honest, it's, Developing a program, it's winning games, develop you know signing top class, I mean all those things. And, and Ryan Day has done nothing in his time at Ohio State to say that he can do any of those things. He inherited a program that was running on all cylinders. I mean, there was they were not down. They were they were a national title contender when Urban Meyer left. So he inherited something that was running. I mean, that would be like Kirby Smart taking over for Nick Saban next year and then saying he's an amazing coach because he was able to keep Nick Saban's thing going. It's like, no crap, dude. Like, he's already – it's it's. I don't – I just – I don't have the respect for Ryan Day that I have for some of the other guys. I'm not saying he's not a good coach. I'm not saying that. But there are a lot of people who do. There are a lot of people who don't think he's a good coach. But he's just in one of those situations where, you know, he entered a race driving a Ferrari against a Camaro. I mean, that's that's the Big Ten. He's driving a Ferrari when everybody else has got Camaros or Mustangs. It's like, no shit, you're going to win, my guy. It's like, <laughs> you got the horsepower advantage. So, now, in fairness, he hasn't messed it up. I mean, he hasn't won the big games, but he hasn't messed it up. He hasn't run it into the ground, so you got to give him credit for that. But, you know, with Kirby, he took a program – and I will never say that Georgia was down because they were not winning at the level that they should have won, but they were not down. They were not buried. They were, the cupboard was not buried. I'm looking at the guy what he was able to do with that talent. So Kirby came into Georgia, but he elevated the program. Has Ryan day elevated Ohio state? Can you say that? Can anybody say that anybody in the comment has, Ryan Day, has he elevated Ohio State from where Urban Meyer was? No, the answer is no, because Urban Meyer won national titles, and, and Ryan Day has not, okay? Now, Dabo, if you want to put Dabo ahead of Kirby, I get it, because Dabo had a run of success, kind of, you know, was a little bit longer than what Kirby's done so far. He's got multiple national titles, right? Two, I believe, right? Is it just two? Two. Yeah, two. Okay, so he's got two national titles. If you want to put, I don't necessarily, I, I wouldn't, but if you wanted to put Dabo ahead of Kirby, I will I will acquiesce to that decision and say okay, I, I can see where you're coming from. Lincoln Riley is another one of those who has done nothing, in my opinion, to say he's the best coach, second best coach in the country. So, you know, if if you're talking about Dan's list, if, if or if you were just being realistic and honest about it, it would be Nick Saban because he is the best, right? Until he leaves, he is the best. I don't care if he goes one and 12 this year, he's still a better coach than everybody else. He just is. Okay. And then I would say as of right now, Kirby is number two because of what he's done recently. Right now, this may be a shocker to some people, but I would put Brian Kelly number three and hear me out because what he was able to do at Notre Dame gets overlooked because they have so many disadvantages that the other schools don't have. He was able to put Notre Dame in a national title game when he shouldn't have been able to do that. And he did it multiple times with different classes. So it wasn't like he ran one class through and just won, okay? Look at every single coach since Lou Holtz at Notre Dame. Nobody else was able to do that. Nobody else. So what he now he may shit the bed down there at LSU, and I don't care if he does or doesn't. But the job that he did at Notre Dame gets completely overlooked and, and people want to say, well, it's Notre Dame. Well, you're thinking 1980s, 1990s Notre Dame. This is not 2020 Notre Dame, where the odds are actually stacked against him, not, not for him. And then I would probably go Lincoln Riley, Ryan Day in some type of order, and Jim Harbaugh probably be in the top 10, I guess. Um, but that's just me. I don't know if you wanted all that, but you got it.
0: <laughs> I, I think, you know, speaking about Dabo. If Davo wins another championship without deviating from his core principles of, hey, once you commit to me, you can't go on another visit, you know, that deal, and if he seeks his ordeals about that, then, yeah, I would say he's probably the second-best coach in college football today um, without having to um, modernize with the rest of college football. But, Dan, real quick, before we move on to the uh, our, our last segment of the show, or as we call it, the main event, my last bullet prediction, which I think, Dan um, – th- when I spoke about it with Dan before the show, said it was probably the boldest one um, out of the two I picked. Brock Bowers finishes as a Heisman finalist. Dan brought up a really good point pre-show. No tight end has ever won the award. Better yet, finishes a finalist. Not even Kyle Pitts a few years ago. Looking at his freshman season, I mean, we're all we're all well-educated people when it comes to uh, Brock Bowers had 56 receptions. 882 yards and 13 touchdowns. That is just his receiving totals. Add in another 56 yards and one touchdown rushing. Guys, they had him running jet sweeps as a true freshman, as a tight end. They had him running tight end screens. I mean, talk about electric players in college football. Brock Bowers is as electric as they come for a guy at his position. Damn. Does does he even make the top 10 of, of the Heisman finals? Of the Heisman, I guess it would be semifinals at that point.
1: I mean, yeah, but if he does, then you almost have to reclassify him as a receiver because a tight end should not be getting those kind of numbers. To get that type of numbers that you're talking about to be a Heisman Trophy candidate, he's going to have to be featured as like a number one where they're throwing to him all the time and taking deep shots because he's going to have to get those numbers. So I'll make an even bolder prediction. If Brock Bowers wins the Heisman Trophy, it's because he's a receiver, not a tight end. But I mean, like, you know, you came with it and I love your passion about it because you love you some Brett Bowers. We all love Brett Bowers, but that, I mean, a tight end winning the Heisman Trophy, that would be something, buddy. That would be something. I mean, it's, we know it's a quarterback's award for the most part. And then wide receivers oh, have hilarious. gotten real, wide receivers have gotten hot re- recently. But I mean, in in that regard, I could definitely see it happening because he might end up being a receiver. But that's that's definitely a bold prediction, man. I, I love it.
0: I you know, I was worried it wasn't it wasn't bold enough. But you know, well, speaking hold of on. about what he would have to do. Wait,
1: so hold on, Rude's got a question if you want to put it up there. And it says, Why can't a tight end be featured as a number one <laughs> in an offense? Well, <laughs> by virtue of what that position is, you would have to be a a wide receiver if you're going to be featured because you're not going to feature somebody running up the middle of the field. Tight ends have always been used as uh, the option that you can't cover it. So, I mean, I, I listen, if you want roots, I love you. And if you want to feature tight ends as your number one in your offense, you go ahead. But I think every coach in college
0: football will disagree with you. I mean, speaking about, I mean, what would be, Dan, just talking about success with Powers and, you know, Roots, I mean, bring up a good point. Why can't he be a number one? Georgia hasn't had a number one receiver since – hasn't had a 1,000-yard receiver since Terrence Edwards. If Brock Bowers is the first player, first receiver, or quote-unquote receiver, see to break, you did that, it. to break that benchmark, does that qualify – I mean, should that – I mean, should that accomplishment just be enough to make him a Heisman candidate because – Not only is he breaking a long-held kind of like bragging rights thing by Terrence Edwards being, you know, the last receiver to do it, but, I mean, he's a tight end.
1: And, and, you know, like uh, Jeremiah brings up a good point right there where you can flex a tight end out to create the mismatch that you want. You absolutely can. But if you just line him up out there, then they're going to make the adjustment. Yeah,
0: whatever, Roots. What about Eric Gilbert? Speaking of speaking of tight ends that are receivers, he's a receiver. But there remember, ain't no doubt about it.
1: Yeah, remember when he came in, he's listed as a wide receiver. If you look at George's depth chart, he is listed as a wide receiver, which is the point what I'm getting to is like if you want to feature him and use him on the outside to create that space, the reason that you can't have a traditional tight end be a number one is if you're lining them up in line, there's too much. I mean, it, it's just it's too difficult to be the number one out of that slot. But if they move – if they want to feature him, he's going to end up being lined up like a wide receiver. So if you look in, – all right, so hold on. Rudes, all of you, calm down. Listen to what I'm telling you. There's a reason that Kyle Pitts did not win the Mackey Award. Do you know the reason that Kyle I, – I want – we're going to have like some really stale show. I want somebody to comment to me why Pitts did not win the Mackey Award. Don't answer though. this. Don't answer this. Don't you dare answer this. I want I want them to tell me why – that Pitts did not win the Mackey Award, which is the best tight end in college football. Do, 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 do. Come on, Rudes. Somebody answer me. Why did he not win the Mackey Award? Because he took too many snaps lined up as a wide receiver.
0: (laughs) Why did Brock Bowers not even finish as a finalist, Dan? That is what they're here for.
1: Yeah, it's because he took too many snaps lined up as a wide receiver. It's a judgment call. So, apparently... That is also why Brock Bowers was not a candidate for the Mackey Award, was they deemed him more of a wide receiver. So it is what it is. So that's my point. If he wins the Heisman Trophy, he will be listed as a wide receiver, not a tight end. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying the guy can't be, huh?
0: Or or at least an H-back in in that sense. I mean – Jeremiah brings Jeremiah brings up a good point. What adjustments do you make when a guy is 6'4", 230 that can run a 4-5? And a in safety some cases, net. Yeah, good Lord. I mean, when Georgia can come out – when a team can come out and run 14 personnel and do whatever the hell they want all game long and you not be able to cover any of it, that's all you need to know. It's not 14 personnel at that point. It's it's bas- I mean, it's basically a 11, 11 personnel at that point because Georgia has no tight ends. The only tight ends are Georgia rosters in my mind – is Rylan Godey and Brett Zither. Oscar Delp, Darnell Washington, Eric Gilbert, Brock Bowers, all those guys can be can be a receiver. But, Dan, transitioning on to our main event topic of the of this episode. Gosh, 52 minutes in. I thought we were going to be over the hour mark by now with the topics we – with the ground we've covered. We got a little co- – Georgia football's Mount Rushmore, Dan. We are building a sculpture in Athens, all right? You're putting four people – Four, pe- four people's coaches, players, their faces on Mount Rushmore. And before you take it from me, Dan, I'm putting – what's his name? Gosh, I'm blanking on his name. I'm – the. I'm I feel in. bad. No, 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 not Dooley. I'm putting the athletic trainer, the head of Georgia's athletic department, on Mount Rushmore. Oh, Correct. my gosh. I'm putting him on Mount Rushmore because what he did last year for Georgia will never be surpassed in my opinion. What did he do last year? Get George Pickens back. Oh, my gosh. the span of a few months. I mean, yeah. you, and then, you know, rewind, Nick Chubb, got him back pretty dang quick. Cap, I mean, a receiver core that was as banged up as I ever remembered. Able to play. I mean, Brock Bowers played with, what, a separated shoulder for the last two games, the National Championship and the Chicago Football Playoff? You two- talk time. about
1: bold predictions. Brock, uh, Brock Bowers is nothing. My guy Harrison just put Ron Corson on the Mount
0: Rushmore in of the football. Name.
1: Oh my goodness!
0: <laughs> Top four staff member of all time. But all jokes aside, Dan, I mean, gonna gonna head him. I'm gonna I'm gonna see your thunder right here. I'm breaking the news, Dan. I'm sorry, Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker, untouchable. He's up there. Yes, you. Uh,
1: under no iteration of the Mount Rushmore does Herschel Walker ever get left off. So. On on your so uh, so far on your Mount Rushmore you have Ron Corson and Herschel Walker, <laughs> so who rounds out yours?
0: You got to go Charlie Trippy. Um, and that that Ron Corson joke was it was a <laughs> joke. I don't have him on my route much more. I didn't I didn't spend the last the last hour trying to think of this with Ron Corson. But I mean, right now it's, it's Herschel Walker, Dooley, Trippy, and I went a little old school Frank Arkington because in, in a lot of opinions I know. Back in the 60s and, and the late 50s, you didn't throw the ball much. Well, what that guy did back then, pretty damn special. But if I had to go, you know, an opinion that I saw, maybe you're back, um, that has really resonated with me after doing some research on the guy, because I am young, never saw him play. Eric Zier maybe one of the best quarterbacks George has ever had. He threw for over a 1,000 yards before passing, was, passing the football was like a big thing.
1: Well, that's because he threw it on every single play. <laughs> I, I mean i that, that's when i was in the boy scouts and we used to be ushers and i used to go to every single georgia home game and eric zire threw the ball on every play
0: but, I, I, and didn't have that much didn't have that much around him for a while no he
1: just it was it was air raid before there was a such thing as air raid but that's some a gun could throw the heck out the football
0: hell yeah so dan i have walker dooley trippy and tarkinson who do you got
1: So I was trying to encapsulate a little bit of everything, right? So I was kind of going all the way to the back and then kind of working my way forward. So you can't not have Charlie Trippi on it because he was kind of the first real superstar at the University of Georgia. There were other guys who were extremely talented, but Charlie Trippi was the one who was the absolute monster superstar before. And I believe he was the number one overall pick in the NFL draft when he went. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. But so Charlie Trippi has to be on on a if you're doing a totality of Georgia football and then the second one will have to be Herschel Walker. Like you said, you can't have it where he's not on it because Herschel Walker, when you talk about the University of Georgia, the people who aren't University of Georgia fans necessarily, they know the name Herschel Walker. So then I'm going to move forward and I I struggled with with the next person because I love Marcus Stroud. I love Marcus. I love Richard Seymour. Those guys were amazing but then you kind of have to put David Pollock on there. You you do because David Pollock in the 2000s was the face of the program, and now you can even say that he's accentuated that by going to ESPN, and he is primed to take over Kirk Herbstreit's role on on game day, and he has made a, a huge uh, just a huge presence for himself in the University of Georgia. So so far, I've got Trippy, I've got Walker, I've got Pollock. So then I was trying to think of the most exciting player that garnered the most attention and you know, it would be hard and there's so many, and I've seen in the comments here, there's so many people that say the fourth one is hard and hundred percent really is hard. And I looked at all, I mean, you talk about AJ green, you talk about Matthew Stafford, you talk about, you know, Aaron Murray is probably the best quarterback to ever play at Georgia. If you, I mean, the guy left college football is the number one winning quarterback all time, but I'm going to go with Todd Gurley. And the reason I do that, listen, I love Nick Chubb and I know that Nick Chubb has better numbers. But Nick Chubb played for four years. Todd Gurley did not. And Todd Gurley, when he played at the University of Georgia, was the most exciting player in the country. He was our version of Michael Vick. Where when he got the ball in his hands, or if you knew he was playing, everybody tuned into that game. Todd Gurley, when he was healthy at the University of Georgia, was must see TV. And for me, that puts him on my list because I I, I have never been such a fanboy over a single person in the history of my life. I. Could not get enough of Gurley, and I was so excited to watch him play. And I was devastated when he got hurt. I was devastated when he got suspended, and I didn't think we could ever find anybody that would be as good as him. Now, granted, we've had Chubb and all these other guys, and they're fantastic or whatever. But and and I have no, I, I love Nick Chubb, but it, I, I mean I have to have Gurley. So to sum it up, my my all time Georgia would be Charlie Trippy, Herschel Walker, David Pollock. And Todd Gurley.
0: And real quick, Dan, I, you know, Colonel Sanders brought up a good point. Dooley, Walker, Kirby. Does Kirby make, if if we're including head coaches? Well, I didn't include
1: head coaches, so
0: I just didn't. If you had to pick, I mean, is Kirby, has Kirby solidified himself in the discussion as, I mean, is he in the same breath as Dooley right now? Or are you going to wait until he wins (sighs) the second championship to even include him in that sentence?
1: No, so listen, I I think Kirby is a better football coach than Vince Dooley, and I don't think that's that's not crazy talk. I mean, look at what he's doing X's nose wise. I mean, recruiting wise. What did what did Vince Dooley do? Vince Dooley got Herschel Walker and he won a national title. I and mean, that defense was really, really good, but that's not Vince Dooley. That was um oh my gosh, I just went blank. Somebody's Art Russell. Me. Erk Russell, it, it was Erk Russell ran that defense and he had that defense. I mean, the, the defense was amazing, which, but they had Herschel Walker and he, they basically just put the game on his shoulders. And I, I, I mean, I, listen, I understand Colonel Sanders says he's not in the same breath as Dooley in legendary status. I understand that. And you're not wrong to say that I agree with what you're saying, but he has not surpassed Dooley in that regard yet, but you let you lit, Kirby win multiple national championships, and nobody talks about Dooley anymore. They just—they just. I mean, but because, but also, you have to keep in mind too that we're in very dangerous territory right now because even Buck Belue says this all the time: is when they won that national championship in 1980. If you go look at the newspaper clippings, I know you're young, but you can pull them up on Google or wherever you want to. Look at the newspaper clippings around that team. is They foresaw a dynasty at the University of Georgia. They thought that Georgia was going to win the next four or five national ta- championships. It ended up not happening. And Georgia didn't win another SEC title until, what, the 2000s?
0: Oh Yeah, O two was like the first one, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, no. so – Well, I think no, they won in '81, the year directly after. No, that's Um, what I'm
1: talking about. From yeah, that that those teams that he had, they were supposed to win multiple. Go go look at the AJC. I'm telling you, it's it will blow your mind the way that they talked about those early '80s teams, were the way that they're talking about Georgia right now. That there was nothing that could stop Georgia, but it didn't happen. So, but to go back to your original point, Kirby has not surpassed Dooley yet, but I do think, I do think Kirby's a better football coach. I just, to, to Colonel Sanders' point, he has not, he is not, he doesn't cast a bigger shadow right now.
0: I I think, you know, when you look at, when you're comparing, I mean, they're both in different eras, obviously, Uh, you know, to me, when you look at, when you compare the two championships, obviously 80 was undefeated, but I mean, you look at, what Kirby did this year and what he's done—I mean, any championship while Nick Saban is still in college football, to me, makes it one one of the more impressive national championship runs. I mean, yes, Georgia did lose. You know, I, I, I'm sure a lot of every Georgia fan wants that loss back, wants that 15 and 0 record. But I mean, if, if Kirby finds a way to get a second national championship before Nick Saban decides to hang up, hang it up. I mean, you're, you're talking about someone who you know, is ready to take the mantle of college football and run the damn show for years to come. So, guys, that is going to be – that's going to wrap it up for episode three.
1: I do want to make one comparison. So, Vince Dooley won his national championship where there was a figure looming in Alabama that was a godlike fixture, and that was Bear Bryant. And Kirby won his title where there's a godlike fixture at Alabama named Nick Saban. So, they do have that in common. I just had to throw that out there.
0: Dan, are you saying that we're in for another forty years?
1: God, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> you realize hey, I would be like, I would be like eighty something years old by the time they win another national title. I, I can't listen. I'm not here for that.
0: <laughs> well, guys, that is going to wrap it up for episode forty-three, an absolutely loaded episode, guys. It's been unreal in the comment section. Thank yeah. you to everyone that joined us today. Um, we got the Classic City. Uh, sports podcast in here, J- Jeremiah Sauter. Jonathan Williams, shout out to you, my man, out in Rome, updating us live on Twitter of all his tourist locations. Colonel Sanders, Rudes, Robert Reynolds for the DGD podcast, and Juan Daniels, shout them out, um, give them a shout out. Guys, go check them out. We've got two podcasts up in here, um, to my knowledge. Buddy, I saw you in the comments earlier. Shout out to the Discord. Guys, that was Dan Kylie. I'm Harris Areno We'll see you back next Tuesday. Same time, same place. See you next week.